Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to synchromysticism, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and co-author of Strange Tales of the Parapolitical, along with my co-host, Frank Zero. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at Visa you.blogspot.com that's v-i-s-u-p-v-i-e-w it's all one word dot blogspot.com and procure a copy of the book at the farm's official store which is at the farm podcast dot store that's all one word the farm podcast dot store all right today's show is the second installment in the forum's ongoing series exploring the world anti-communist league or wackle as it is known in these parts and this means that part of the Wackle Roundtable is with me here today. The kids really seem to be digging you guys based on the hits, the more rearmament show, and the first Wackle one got, so this is a good thing. And I'm sure it will probably continue with the two guys that are here with me now. One of them is my research partner, Keith Allen Dennis. Keith, how are things doing in Bisbee, Arizona? I mean, you're right there at the border. Is the UN massing yet? No. Uh, thanks for promoting me to research partner. That's cool. Um, <clears throat> no, they're they're building the wall though. It's, That's it's like all the highways around here, are like kind of jammed up with trucks, and I was stuck behind one with that had a bunch of tank barriers on it. You know. Just so. imagine, man, when it is completed, Trump's name will be on that wall, and you could gaze upon it for the rest of your days. Yeah, it's been here really since since I've lived here, but it's expanding into you know other areas. Anyway, yeah, so that's happening. That is wonderful. <laughs> All right, and also back with me is Moss Robinson, who took us through the first whack on Stomit in such an expert fashion. Moss, thank you so much for joining us again today. How are you doing, brother? I'm good. Yeah, thank you for having me again. Absolutely, man. It's always a pleasure to have you on. All right, so the World Anti-Communist League, or Wackle. For those of you who are just joining the party, during its heyday in the 1980s, Wackle was the visible personification of the fascist international. It was awash with aging Nazis and fascist war criminals, budding neo-fascist terrorists, numerous former spooks and military officers from across the world, and any number of drug lords, arms merchants, and quote-unquote freedom fighters more commonly known as death squads throughout much of the rest of the civilized world. Wackle's legacy is a sinister one, to be sure, which is why we are looking at it today, because it is still very much with us. But to first understand this legacy, we must understand the thing itself. Now, the two principal bodies driving Wackle for decades were the Anti-Bolshevik Bloc of Nations, or the ABN, and the Asian People's Anti-Communist League, or APACL. Our boy Moss here did such a great job of giving us a rundown of the ABN during the first installment of this series. But to recap briefly, the ABN had its origins in pre-World War II fascist Eastern European groups, but especially a Ukrainian outfit known as the OUNB. These guys had an on-again, off-again relationship with the Nazis and later the UK and US intelligence services before hooking up with APACL. So with the ABN checked off the list, we're going to look a little bit at APACL today. But to fully grok APACL, there are two groups behind that that you must also understand. One of them is the Unification Church, which will be our subject in the next installment of this series. And the other one is the so-called China Lobby, which we're going to be getting into heavily today. 
Now, the China lobby, which was in fact based out of Taiwan mainly since the end or since the early Cold War, is another name for the Chinese nationalist Europa that emerged after the communists prevailed during the Chinese Civil War of the late 1940s. Much of it was centered around and in Taiwan. This movement was extremely well-funded for reasons I shall get into in just a moment. And as such, it exercised a tremendous amount of influence on U.S. foreign policy for decades. And it was really on par with what we associate with the Israeli lobby today. It is said that the Republican Party will not make a foreign policy decision without consulting with the Israeli lobby first. And this was pretty much the state of affairs with Eastern Asia and the China lobby during much of the Cold War. Now, conventional history holds that Nixon effectively broke the stranglehold that the China lobby had on U.S. foreign policy when he began the process of normalizing relations with the People's Republic of China, or PRC, during the 1970s. Certainly, the China lobby never really wielded the same degree of power it did for nearly a quarter of a century beforehand, but it just didn't go away either. And in point of fact, it's still with us today. So, Keith, to start off with, why does the China lobby still matter today? Well, um, if I can put it in one word, I'd just say McCarthyism. You know, uh, people don't really talk about the China lobby anymore. Or if they do, they talk about it in terms of, um, you know, Walmart <laughs> uh, and the, yeah. the Democratic Party's, you know, kind of <clears throat> working with the Chinese communists uh, for, you know, and, and, and the American government in general for, for decades, right? But, uh, but uh, China lobby had a very different connotation back in the day. So I'll just throw a few words that maybe you've heard of. The paranoid style in American politics. Heard of that, right? I have a copy of it sitting right here. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, McCarthyism. Maybe you've heard of the John Birch Society. Um, you know, so, I mean, we're pretty much all living in Alex Jones' model village at this point. Um, and the conspiratardation has kind of taken over the nation. And, uh, and it really got started after World War II. Um, and, and, and all that stuff I just mentioned, it, without any exaggeration, I'll just lay all of that at the feet of the China lobby. Just say that they're the ones that started it all. So, you know, that's significant, right? Um, I mean, if you've ever heard of the, the notion of, you know, a deep state with subversive infiltrators trying to the enemy within trying to bring us down i mean that really that got started by the china lobby as a as a meme um yeah i mean in john birch society um you know people know what it is but the namesake of it john birch uh who robert welch started john birch society called the first casualty of world war three a title that was later to be dusted off and crowned on to Larry McDonald when he died in the 80s in that plane crash 007. Um, the first holder of that title was John Birch, <clears throat> grew up in China in, to a, like a Chinese uh, missionary family, worked in intelligence, worked for uh, Claire Cheneau of the Flying Tigers fame, worked for the OSS for a minute, but then said, no, I want to work for Claire. Um, after uh, 
World War II ended officially VJ Day. They uh, the, the terms of Japanese surrender. They, you know, you continue to occupy the territory you have on the Chinese mainland until it can be surrendered to Chiang Kai-shek. And so that's what they were doing. And uh, John Birch is on a recon mission with some uh, Chinese nationalists and gets killed by some Chinese communists. And that's where the, you know, first casualty of World War III that came from, right? Um, so real boost uh, of oxygen to the old right and the new right. Um, you could say on the old right front, um, there's a lobby group called 10 Million Americans Mobilizing for Justice, which was a movement to prevent the censure of Joe McCarthy. Had people like George Stratemeyer, John Trevor of the American Coalition for Patriotic Societies, Pedro Del Valle, Charles Edison, the uh, former Secretary of the Navy, and I think he was governor of New Jersey son of thomas edison the famous uh inventor he was in it uh charles edison was also can you hear it started to rain can you hear it oh yeah okay well oh, no, we, no we're not we're not here in the ring no you're fine okay well you're probably gonna but anyway um charles edison was also a member of a new right organization called the Committee of One Million Against the Admission of Red China into the United Nations. And that was started by Marvin Liebman, who later went on to help start Young Americans for Freedom. And uh, the, the uh, Barry Goldwater campaign in, in the 60s. So there's your new right connection. And just in passing, because I just think it's interesting, it's kind of off topic, but I'll just throw this out there. Uh, on the original roster of the, you know, the leaders of um, the Committee of One Million was a guy named Nicholas de Rochefort, who I'll admit I don't know a whole lot about. But that guy also was present at the creation of NICAP. So. Oh yes, yes, yes. He was um oh um, um he was in like the Radio Free Europe stuff or something like that, I believe, like a psychological warfare officer, if I remember correctly. Oh, psychological warfare. You mean like UFO culture? I get it. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, that's that's a that's something we should talk about again sometime. I was really fascinated by that. But anyway, um, yeah. So you know, these are the, 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 you know the whole reason they wanted to prevent the censure of Joseph McCarthy is because he was right about the betrayal with China. The whole reason for Marvin Liebman's committee of 1 million was to prevent red China from getting put into the United Nations. So you see the theme here, you know, it's this China lobby agitation, right? And it's, I'm just giving you like a quick tour of all this, but I guess the, the real takeaway is that the China lobby guys, they wind up shaping not only mainstream conservative politics from the 50s on onward, but also the fringe, the conspiracy industry, which, as I said in the 4GW podcast, is like, you know, it's an appendage of conservative politics in this country, full stop. That's my opinion, okay? Um, several of the people in those groups that I just mentioned and in the China lobby more generally wind up being part of APACL, 
Asian People's Anti-Communist League and its liaison in the United States and later the World Anti-Communist League. And some of those names like Lee Edwards and Marvin Liebman that are more commonly associated with things like Young Americans for Freedom and building, starting to build in the 60s what would become in the 80s, the Reagan Revolution. These are old China lobby guys. So, and then finally, I guess, you know, keeping that, you could say fascist candle burning. And uh, that's, it's really too blunt of a, of a term. You know, Richard Hofstetter that wrote the, uh, the paranoid style in American politics, you know, was explicit. Like, I don't think you should call it fascism, you know, in America. It's, it's, it's a whole different uniquely American kind of thing. But still, you got to have that, you know, grain of sand if you want a pearl, right? So it's like this, this, this victimhood, this martyrdom thing. We were betrayed, you know. We, we lost China, right? And um, so it really kept that whole nucleus of paranoia and suspicion in American politics. It, it kind of helped give birth to it and definitely kept it going long after the China lobby was effective, if it ever was, in actually meeting its goals of us bailing out Chiang Kai-shek. But you know, I digress. Um, but when Reagan was going into office, he did this little thing that later got repeated when Trump was coming into the office. Um, where they do this little diplomatic pantomime thing where they just kind of fire a rhetorical shot across the bow of communist China saying, you know what, we're, it's time to get tough on Taiwan again. And it creates a little, you know, diplomatic incident. You know, I don't remember the details of it with the Reagan one, but it was Bob Dole who, who was a, a China lobby guy. You know, he was working for them after during his political career that I thought he was dead by now, but in like <laughs> late 20, late 2016, early 2017, before the inauguration, you know, he starts doing that same kind of like, yeah, Taiwan, right. You know, and now you've got the committee present danger, China, which is, uh, uh, there's a guy, Robbie Martin, uh, media roots radio that just did a few months ago, like a really deep dive on this committee for present danger china so the committee for present danger you know recluse you can talk about that more but uh it's it's been revived for the third time by some people that are you know tough on china steve bannon is one of them peter navarro and and you can see this uh this language coming out on a lot of different fronts you know don't call it corona call it the kung flu you know all that kind of stuff you know it's like a neocon I'll let Robbie Martin, you know, talk about it, but it's just like a kind of a neoconservative pushing for a Cold War with China kind of thing happening now. So. So it never ended. I'll just let's leave it at that. Yeah. And I mean, definitely, when you see the Committee for Present Danger being rolled out again, it is never a good sign. Of course, the first one, what I kind of think of as Mach 1, had its origins in uh, the very late 40s, very early 50s. And essentially, it was the group that was mobilized to enshrine the military-industrial complex into the national fabric. Um, Ironically, the first one was actually driven more by Eastern establishment figures with some opposition from the far right circles, um, though that was principally because the Eastern establishment figures wanted to focus on Europe 
far right wanted to focus on Eastern Asia, so there was a little bit of that conflict as well. But um, they did get their act together, so to speak, and got things going by the early 50s, which it mean, which was a major success for the, C, uh, the Committee for Present Danger. Uh, that basically led to the end of the first version, but it was revived again in the mid-1970s, um, I believe specifically around the presidency of Jimmy Carter. And this really was, I think, a reflection of a lot of disillusionment, many of the old hawks within the Eastern establishment by uh, Paul Nitze were beginning to feel against the Rockefeller foreign policy. Of course, the Rockefellers had really dominated foreign policy almost totally since probably the Nixon presidency. I mean, you know, you had a succession of Henry Kissinger really driving it, and then Zbigniew Brzezinski when Jimmy Carter came in. I mean, both of those the guys. Trilateral were, commission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, these guys were all major Rockefeller stooges. And the 70s, I mean, from a geopolitical perspective, I mean, it was just a disaster for the United States. I mean, we were totally driven out of southeastern Asia, aside from a small toehold that we had in Korea after decades of fighting there and innumerable, uncountable resources that were thrown at it. And then conversely, you had the rise of Arab nationalism, the oil embargoes and so forth. And to cap the decade off, we had just seen the Shah. Uh, overthrown. He had been our most reliable ally in that vitally right. strategically important part of the world. So a lot of people were looking at the Rockefellers at this point, uh, not just in the far right, but the Eastern establishment, wondering, what the hell, guys? And this was really when the neocon movement began to emerge in earnest. I mean, the neocons essentially had been... Um, you know, Rockefeller elites who had essentially become disillusioned with the foreign policy and had moved further to the right, uh, paving the way effectively for the Reagan revolution. So, I mean, it's very fitting that the same group of neocons, the next generation of them is once again coming out to revive the Committee for Present Danger. Um, certainly they would be the logical successors, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, given uh, that the first one prefaced the rise of the military industrial complex and the second one, the Reagan revolution, we should probably be a little weary about it now being rolled out yet again. Right. All right. So let us get back, though, to the history of the China lobby for a minute here. All right. So as we know it, it began to emerge in the late 1920s. Now, at the time, Shanghai was the drug capital of the Far East. A series of rival gangs with the support of rival political parties and their militias were vying for control of the city. Now, one of these factions consisted of the legendary Chinese drug lord Du Yuxiang and his Green Gang, along with the covert support of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, or KMT, party. This was the faction that prevailed, and in the aftermath, a brutal white terror was launched in Shanghai with the support of the Green Gang against the Chinese communists. The Americans and the British business communities were also delighted by these developments. This paved the way for the KNT to increase its stronghold on the lucrative opium trade. After seizing power, Chang and Du Yuzhang uh, put, uh, put Du Yuzhang on the powerful Shanghai Municipal Council as the chief of the Shanghai Opium Suppressive Bureau, which is, you know, just hysterical. I mean, basically, Double you're speak. Yeah. <laughs> the, great, the most powerful drug lord in the country in charge of suppressing opium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's beautiful. Um there, he was joined by such colorful figures as William Keswick, part of the storied Scotch, Scottish family that controlled Geraldine Matheson's shipping company. In fact, I think they still do. Okay, by this time, Geraldine and the Keswick family were old hands in the opium racket. Uh, I mean, they had been involved with it 
going back, I believe, to at least the early 19th century or something to that effect. Lots and lots of that family fortune was bought and paid for with drug money. So, needless to say, Dew did not suppress much of any opium. In fact, he used his status to establish a virtual monopoly over it in China and also the United States Chinese community. Many of the tongs over here were being supplied by the Green Gang. So, these activities made Chiang Kai-shek and the KMT very wealthy and very influential. As such, after Japan invaded and occupied China, Du would begin collaborating with the Yakuza in Manchuria, and Western officials would allow it for years to come. This despite the fact that Chiang was theoretically at war with Japan. The drug trade was so lucrative that it would make strange bedfellows, a fact that would continue throughout the Cold War. Now, Chiang Kai-shek's efforts to suppress the rights of his own people while flooding them with drugs made him very popular with Western interests, but not so much at home. As such, when the Second World War concluded and the Civil War began, he found himself with little support domestically. This was one of the factors that contributed to the communist victory. Chiang and the KMT then relocated to Formosia, a large island off the coast of China. They then committed an enormous genocide against the indigenous people who were by and large totally unarmed, which the great Douglas Valentine addressed on a prior podcast here. Okay, This paved the way for what is effectively an apartheid nation that we know today as Taiwan. For a brief period of time, its existence, along with the Far Eastern opium trade, hung in the balance. But then something happened. The so-called Polycook Expedition one of the most pivotal deep events of the 20th century, there are two reasons why it was significant. The first had to do with the American intelligence players. At the time, they were two major factions. Okay, one of those was the OSS Old Boys. Everybody's heard of them and how they took over the CIA. The other one were what I like to think of as the fabulous MacArthur Boys. During the Second World War, the OSS was totally blocked out of the Far East by Douglas MacArthur and his intelligence chief, General Charles Willoughby. This effectively made Willoughby the most powerful American intelligence officer in the entire Far East throughout the Second World War and up to at least the late 1940s. And he and his people got up to the same types of things that the OSS and later the CIA were getting up to in Eastern Europe in general, sheltering war criminals and dividing up war plunder. This made Willoughby and a lot of his officers who served under him very powerful. Up until the late 1940s, the OSS Old Boys and the fabulous MacArthur Boys had quite the rivalry going within the U.S. intelligence community. They seemed to have eventually buried the hatchet, however, and that began with the Polly Cook expedition. Both William Polly and Admiral Charles Cook, uh, the front men, were very much a part of the MacArthur clique. But a lot of the expedition was being sponsored by the World Commerce Corporation, a shadowy commercial intelligence outfit that William Donovan was a director of. There were also a lot of British players there as well, including Keswick. Keswick had actually been Donovan's liaisons with the British Special Operations Executive during the Second World War. Essentially, then, Cook and Polly brought the MacArthur clique in harmony with the intelligence-connected elements of the old Anglo-American establishment on the opium trade. And, um, yeah, that was a major victory, I suppose, in a certain sense for our uh, peculiar deep state here. And that was the objective of these moves, namely to save Chiang Kai-shek's control over the opium trade. 
Keith, there was some interesting politics at play here. Arguably, both the far right and intelligence-connected aspects of the Anglo-American intelligence community were radicalized by the activities of Truman in regards to the Chinese Civil War. Okay, can you give us a bit on that now? Yeah, and, and you know, it's bigger than Truman. It's bigger than drugs. It's the whole of China. You know, then and now, the most populous nation in the world. And... Um, and that civil war actually started around 27, uh, but it just kind of got going again after, you know, VJ Day. But yeah, it was about you know China itself and who would control it. Um, and one thing I found in parapolitical literature over the years is that you know there's so much to talk about with with these things um, on topic on the subject that sometimes like the historical context of things gets you know, left out. So if, if I could beg your pardon, I'd like to unpack a little bit of that because I, I think it's important. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, let's look at the United States. It was a cakewalk across east to west, unless you were Native American or Hispanic. Right. But I mean, and, you know, but um, I mean, think about something like the Louisiana Purchase and just how easy it was for struggling European empires who are perpetually at war with each other. I mean, people used to say, oh, those people in the Middle East, they, all they've been doing is killing each other for thousands of years. Like, yeah, what about, what about Europe, man? <laughs> Savages, you know. So, anyway, so one by one, these European empires are having to liquidate some of their overseas territory, and the United States picks up a lot of that on the cheap. And there's this... Uh, you know, kind of famous concept in uh, American history, Frederick Jackson Turner, the, the, the sort of the Turner thesis is like American greatness, American democracy, American civilization is depends on the frontiers built on the frontier, you know. So for a long time, for 400 years, it's just like the frontier, the frontier, you can go west, go west. And um, Eventually, there's no more west to go to. You reach the Pacific coast, and the next logical step is to jump, right? Um, but at, during that time, you know, Chinese uh, in the latter quarter of the 19th century, you know, you had things like the Chinese Exclusion Act, and I think the other one was like the Page Act, maybe. Yeah, it's like, um, you know, restricting Chinese women from coming and then the chinese exclusion act excludes a lot more and uh but overseas our policy towards china was called the open door policy and it was kind of this toothless kumbaya like you know pantomime of the monroe doctrine sort of thing eh, that's probably a bad comparison but you know like there's all these um european empires that have port cities that they'd forced open in China. And, you know, the U.S. is like, we, we want them to, to be free trade zones. And we basically, we want access to those Chinese markets. And please, other European powers, don't close us off from them. And the other thing, it was part of this open door policy was kind of this paternalistic big brother attitude that we had towards China where, you know, the United States, totally intoxicated by its seemingly divinely providential success in the world to that point, 
just had kind of this false sense of confidence and security that they're just going to be able to magically make it happen anywhere in the world, whatever they wanted to do. Right. So, and that was kind of the attitude towards China um, and towards themselves. Um, but anyway, part of that attitude was also um, preserve China as a, a whole administrative state as one territorially intact, you know, state so that you had fewer um, trading partners to have to deal with. And there was this notion of, of helping China build up as a world power that would be on our team on the other side of the ocean. Okay. So, but our diplomatic capabilities uh, really weren't very strong. And our knowledge of the Asian interior wasn't very well developed. Um, we had Christian missionaries. We had the old China trade, you know, the heroin trade, which people like, you know, the Roosevelt family made made their bones in, skull and bones, whatever. Um, you know, and, and, and you had the missionaries and, and all that kind of stuff. But as far as like a really well developed, you know, teams of experts and like actual diplomats, we didn't have a lot of that. Um, and for a while, didn't really think we needed it. But it started to change when the U.S. took that Turner thesis and pushed it into high gear and just jumped across the Pacific Ocean, taking the Philippines from Spain in 1898 or 99, you know, and becoming an empire, you know, like taking territory overseas, you know. Um, and that's when we started to build up a sphere of influence. Whoa, it's, it's raining out here, man. That's thunder. Um, you know, build, we started to build up a sphere of influence in that part of the world at the very end of the 19th century. And around that same time, you know, the, the, the Yankee Anglo-American alliance is really being like solidified. And uh, you get your Milner kindergartens and your roundtable groups, you know, like uh, Carol Quigley talked about in, in um, Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-American Establishment. And, you know, the British did have this global pool of experts and diplomats and translators and scholars. And so these, kinder, these, these uh, roundtable groups that spread all over the world to create the new world order, you know, the British Commonwealth. Uh, the one in the United States is known to us as the Council on Foreign Relations. But there was an East Asian one, too, and that was called the Institute for Pacific Relations. And we relied on that expertise to provide some of that diplomatic and, and uh, foreign relations kind of um, infrastructure that we lacked, okay? So anyway... Come the 20s, you know, this Chinese Civil War starts. But even before that, this open door policy where we just kind of got this magical American thinking that everything was just going to take care of itself over there. It's being messed with big time. You know, you get the Sino-Russian War, like 1905, I think it was. And um, Japan made Russia concede some of its holdings, railroads and ports and things in uh 
in Manchuria, which is in China, you know, um, uh, the Soviet Union themselves uh, started incursions into Manchuria, I think, around the late 20s or early 30s. And then, of course, Japan itself invaded China when it's already got a civil war going on. So, so much for territorial integrity of China, you know, that, that's part of this idea behind the open door policy. I mean, it's and, and the American public is fairly uninformed. And we were very much a Yankee dominated Atlantic European focused country at the time. Here comes some more thunder. Ah. Um, and so just kind of this um, this myopia, you know, where we had this this idea that it was all just going to work out, but it wasn't working out. Next thing you know, it's World War Two. And so you guys ever played a game called Axis and Allies board game? Uh, not for myself. All right. Probably not. Right. OK, I'm probably the only nerd in this little <laughs> group that's played this Milton Bradley board game. It's like Monopoly meets Risk set in World War II. And it's the United States, Britain, and the Russians, the Soviet Union, the communists, on the good guy team against Germany and Japan on the bad guy team. And so if you're playing that board game and you're playing as the United States you got a, a decisive decision you got to make at the very beginning of that game. And <clears throat> the question is, do we go after Germany first or we did go after Japan first? And you got to kind of pick one and stick with it and see it through. And we all know what happened in real life. After Pearl Harbor, they had these conferences, you know, in, in December. And I think it went into January of, of 42. Where. The U.S. had to decide just that. And, of course, our elder brothers, the, uh, the British, managed to convince us to go after Germany first, which is another way of saying bail out Western Europe and especially Britain first because they were getting hammered. <laughs> and there were a lot of people in the United States that thought at the time that that was a mistake. You know, okay, France and, and Britain are getting pummeled, fine. But isn't Hitler going after the commies? Isn't he going after Moscow, the nest of world communism? Isn't that a good thing? Come on, guys. Meanwhile, our whole open-door policy has been exploded, and China is being ripped apart internally and by the Japanese. And shouldn't we go after that first? Because what if the commies take over? And course we know that's exactly what happened but um in one of these books i was reading somebody a midwestern politician in the 50s had told the author that the pacific theater was referred to back in the day as the republican war <laughs> and if you ever you know the parapolitical classic um the yankee cowboy war goes into this this dynamic of the tension between the old money blue blood Atlantic focused, you know, deep familial ties between the Eastern establishment and the British versus the new money, you know, the rapidly advancing industrial capacity and capital extraction in the West, the railroads, the oil business, the logging and mining businesses, 
you know, people that were like self-made frontiersmen, embodiments of that Turner thesis I'm talking about, where they go west and it's not daddy's money, it's my own blood, sweat, and tears, and I made these millions myself, and screw Europe, you know. And somewhere in my notes, let's see if I can find it, I got a good quote from, you know, Douglas MacArthur himself, where he gets into this, see if I can find it, but yeah, it is Douglas MacArthur summed it up. It goes like this, and I'll quote. I won't do the Dan Carlin quote voice, but I'll just I'll just read it. Quote, the Chinese situation is disastrous. It is the bitter fruit of our decision to concentrate our full strength against Germany. We made the same old mistake of intervening in European quarrels, which we can't hope to solve because they're insoluble. Europe is a dying system. It is worn out and run down. And it will become an economic and industrial hegemony of Soviet Russia. Yikes. Um, hmm. The lands touching the Pacific with their billions of inhabitants will determine the course of history for the next 10,000 years. And if Chiang Kai-shek is overthrown by Japan, China will be thrown into other, utter confusion. End quote. So, you know, whatever you think about MacArthur, that's a very pragmatic and forward-thinking statement. And he, he's not wrong, you know. These Europeans have just been killing each other for thousands of years, <laughs> after all. And so, yeah, so the Cowboys want to go after Japan first, because after the war, that's this East Asian sphere of influence that they want. And instead, Big Brother, Great Britain, traps the United States, some said, into going after Germany first. And so what happened after the war? The Civil War gets going again, and Chiang Kai-shek, who, as you said, roundly despised by the U.S. forces that worked with him in World War II. General Stilwell couldn't stand him, wound up getting recalled over it. Um, he was withholding and hoarding Lend-Lease stuff that we were giving him to fight against Japanese and instead he was he was hoarding it and banking it so he could use it against Mao after the war and after these other people came and bailed out Japan you know bailed them out of Japanese grip um, ran the areas in his territory like a feudal warlord and gangster that he was um, and they called this Kuomintang party you know feudal minded um, so back to the the, the roundtable group, the Institute of Pacific Relations. That's your think tank. They're working with the State Department. They're part of this network of roundtable groups. Um, so they're liaising easily with our own Council on Foreign Relations. And they're putting out policy papers and discussing, you know, who should we back? Who should, who, who's, what are our choices in China after the war? And who's best suited to to run the place. And there were a lot of voices. The IPR was not monolithic, okay? But it had diversity of opinions. And some of those opinions were pro-Mao, or at the very least, they were anti-Chang. And um, all that stuff that I just said about Chang, and a lot of them believed that. And some of them kind of in the middle were like, well, we may not have much choice but to see what happens with the communist China after the war. And some of them are like, well, you know, Ma uh, Mao's type of communism isn't 
necessarily the same as Soviet communism, and there's every reason to believe that their version will be different than Soviet communism. So we should give them a chance. And then there were others that were just like, yeah, communism's great. At this time, on the Axis and Allies board, you know, the Allies include the Soviet Union, right? Uh, we were working with and supporting socialist and communist partisans against the fascists in Western and Eastern Europe. We were supporting the Viet Minh of Ho Chi Minh in Southeast Asia during this time. So it's not, I mean, now that those kind of opinions seem extreme, like pro-communist, how could you, you know? But at the time, we just had to, what Donald Rumsfeld say, we go to war with the troops we have, not the ones we wish we had, right? So, you know, being mildly pro-communist at the time was not like the, the extreme type of position we would think of it today. And besides, the communists around the world were barely getting started killing millions upon millions of people. And it wasn't well understood to everybody how much the Soviet Union had already been doing that uh, within its territory. So, you know, we can look back now and say, man, these guys killed scores of millions of people. But that wasn't necessarily true at the time. So anyway, it's these IPR guys that are influential in influencing the State Department to just you know, just let this happen. Chang is losing anyway, and we're not going to be able to get the political support to invade China ourselves. And Mao Zedong's probably going to win, and we should just probably be okay with that because we don't really have a lot of choice. And so there was this famous thing they called it the White Paper, and uh, Dean Acheson, Secretary of State, you know, handed this over to Truman. And I'll read you the, what he said, you know, the unfortunate but inescapable fact, quote, is that the ominous result of the civil war in China was beyond the control of the government in the United States. Nothing that this country did or could have done within the reasonable limits of its capabilities could have changed that result. Nothing that was left undone by this country has contributed to it. It was a product of internal Chinese forces, forces which this country tried to influence but could not. A decision was arrived at within China, if only a decision by default. So back to that magical thinking of the United States where just divine providence will lay bare the world for us to have our way with. That kind of optimism that grew out of manifest destiny and our westward expansion in the, in the 19th century and all the kind of myths about that the U.S. had about themselves and about China and how everything was just going to magically happen for us could not handle this reality. You know, we wanted to build them up as a great power. There is like 800,000 people in there. That's a big market. And we want in on it. And then we don't get it. And it's like, you know, whose fault is this? Who are we going to sacrifice? You know, who, who's fired? You know, that was the question after the Chinese Civil War kind of concluded. And so you had just enough to go on. Well, there's some pro-communist people in the Institute for Pacific Relations, which is advising the State Department. Oh, crap. You know, the State Department is infiltrated by communists. And so Chiang Kai-shek's China lobby had, you know, pushed this pro-Chang line this whole time. And it got kind of weaponized into 
uh, playing that who's fired and whose fault is this game. So that's just just a little bit of history because it's I think it's important to uh, to give some context to all this, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that was fabulous. You really did a great job of uh, breaking down what is a very complex geopolitical situation there. Um, but OK, now that we've set the stage, let's get back to the Asian People's Anti-Communist League. How did APACL come into all of this, Keith? What was it? Well, Asian People's Anti-Communist League started officially about a year after the Korean War armistice. And um, the idea for it, it was supposed to be like a NATO, you know, for the Far East. Um, and Syngman Rhee's government in Korea and Chiang Kai-shek's government in Taiwan were kind of the core of it. All the way back in 49, they were talking about this thing called the Pacific Pact which, you know, mutual defense pact, you know, between, you know, for the free world, which there was no free world over there. You know, you were either like in a communist dictatorship or you're in a military dictatorship like Vietnam and South Korea and Taiwan, or you were like in American occupied Japan, you know, there's no free world, but that's what they called it. Um, so the Pacific pact idea in 49 uh, becomes something called uh, NITO, Northeast Asian Treaty Organization, in the early 50s. And it doesn't get a lot of support. Um, the Pacific Pact is not supported by Truman. The NITO is not supported by Eisenhower. And the reason is because they wanted to build up Japan as kind of the strategic pillar of the East Asian strategy. And for reasons that ought to be easily understood, the, uh, the government of Sigmund Rhee in Korea did not want to be in the same room with the Japanese leadership because they had brutalized that, you know, part of the world pretty thoroughly. So, but they still wanted to do something. So in 1954... They start the Asian People's Anti-Communist League, and the, the core triumvirate is the Vietnam, uh, Taiwan, South Korea axis. They had Hong Kong and the Ryukyu Islands and a couple of others, Thailand, Philippines, as observer status. And then there was Macau, which I finally just got to start reading Gold Warriors. I got like a hard copy of it. I'm just kind of thumbing through it looking for references to Willoughby in there. And um, Macau got left out by accident or chance or whatever. It was a Portuguese colony, got left out of the, the negotiations at the Bretton Woods where they were figuring out the financial situation of the, the world, you know, after World War II. And they had a rule that, you know, you couldn't be trading in stolen, looted, war loot gold and, and other, you know, commodities and Macau got somehow left out of that so it became like this free trading hub where a lot of looted Nazi and golden lily gold got traded in the years after the war but that's it's off the subject but anyway Macau was was one of them um anyway uh it's been you know if you read like the book for 
for now, uh, on the World Anti-Communist League, Inside the League, published in 86. Um, you know, they talk, they talk about Asian People's Anti-Communist League, and, and they made the allegation, which has been repeated a lot since then, that the CIA funded APACL from the beginning. It hasn't been uh, conclusively proven one way or the other, and maybe never will be, but, you know, it makes sense. I mean, that CIA was about the most successful anti-communist operation in history. So, you know, Truman won't support the Pacific Pact, and Eisenhower won't support NATO, but the CIA will underwrite the beginning of APACL, you know. And it's weird because there's all this looted Japanese gold around and they didn't capture all of it and there's all this uh these heroin markets and things and and yet if you look at these wackle guys and even asian people's anti-communist league guys they're always in the private correspondence they're always begging for money they, they just they seem to be broke even though there's all this, this black market stuff all around but I, I don't i never quite got that so maybe they needed a, a check from the cia and maybe they got it but um but you know, uh, Ray Klein, the consummate deep state operative that he was, was uh, apparently instrumental in all of this. Um, he was a good friend of Chiang Ching Kuo, which was Chiang Kai-shek's son, who was both the... Uh, chief of the secret police and intelligence for the Kuomintang party and also in charge of the, you know, the heroin operations in the Shan states, in Burma, because, you know, everybody knows that the, uh, the Chinese nationalists went to Taiwan when they lost the war, but there was a bunch of them that actually evacuated over the Southern border of China into Indochina. Right. And the, the, that part of the story, I mean, everybody knows it if they look it up, but, it's not often, you know, put into their, into the story. But yeah, a bunch of his army actually evacuated into this this northern part of Indochina, and they kind of pressed the local tribesmen into, you know, getting the opium going to fund some of their operations. And uh, Chang Chinkuo was uh, part of that, right? And it's it's funny because I, I got to go to the Hoover Institution a few years and I was doing study on the World Anti-Communist League and I got to go in the big tower that's like on their their uh, their logo, and I got to see and take pictures of a a copy of Ray Klein's Remembrance of Chang Chinquo called Chang Chinquo Remembered, and he actually I mean I'll give him props man he actually acknowledged some about the opium trade and he basically said hey look you know everybody was doing it. You kind of had to if you wanted to get anywhere. There's nothing special about anybody in particular getting in on that, you know. And uh, I guess we ought to be thankful that, I mean, so many of these guys would never, ever even acknowledge anything along those lines. But at least Ray Klein had the temerity to to do so. And he wasn't wrong. You know, that whole, like, French uh, Indochina colony infrastructure, a lot of it was built through state opium monopolies in the 19th century. You know, it's just, it, it was pretty normalized over there. But anyway, um, back to APACL. I mean, they, so they started in 54 
and kind of consolidated and got their stuff together. And um, within the next couple of years, they're trying to expand really around the world, really expand towards making what would become Wackle. And that started with, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're getting like way out of their East Asian homeland. They're signing up countries like Pakistan and Turkey, you know, and, um, and West Germany and the ABN, but also the white Russian, uh, NTS, which I think is supposed to mean, uh, union of trade solidarists or something like that, you know? So they're working with white Russians and they're working with, uh, you know, people like Stetsko's ABN who are pretty much just like to the point of just being racist against Russians. I mean, they just hated them. If you read the ABN correspondence, they'll have like little, little lines sometimes talking about how much Russian people just suck, you know, (laughs) but anyway, so they weren't too, too picky. Um, and if they would work with anybody. And so, um, and in 1957, they jumped over the Pacific ocean and they started trying to work with Latin American governments, which was a, a partnership that the Kuomintang, um, and the Taiwanese would carry forward, you know, with great bloodshed, all the way into the 80s um but it started in, in 57 there was this was it called the third congress against soviet intervention in latin america or something like that and um which would have meant it would have started in 54 but they issued kind of this joint statement saying you know it's going to be the policy of our organization and apacl to create a worldwide anti-communist federation. And, and that organization, by the way, was uh, called the Committee for Inter-American Committee for Defense of the Continent. And in the Spanish, the acronym is CIADC, which I think is fitting, very nice. So uh, we'll go with CIADC. Um, and, and that, at the time, was the second largest transnational anti-communist you know, coordinating body in the world. And I think the third one was in West, uh, Western Europe, out of Germany. Anyway, um, yeah, so they're, they're expanding like that into Latin America. And, you know, if you look at Marvin Liebman's uh, auto-hagiography, uh, coming out conservative, um, you know, he, he takes credit for being the brains behind, you know, the world anti-communist league. And it's just, it's just trash. It's like, first of all, a lot, I mean, the ABN did the same thing. This is all our idea. We're going to take credit for it. And, but <clears throat> no, it's pretty clearly in their policy documents there that they, they, you know, there was the ABN and the CIADC that really were pushing it. And it's, you know, these other organizations were too, but it's just, you know, Marvin Liebman later disavows people like Stetsko and, um, you know, and, and he got accused of running off with a bunch of the money that was being uh, amassed to try to make the World Anti-Communist League happen. And the Mexicans and the Stetskos and the, the ABN people were pissed at this guy for, for decades afterwards because of what they saw as this betrayal. And the Mexican delegation didn't even have enough money to get plane tickets to go to the second meeting after the March 1958 
you know, meeting, which we'll maybe get into some more detail later. But yeah, but then, you know, decades later, he's in his he's writing his book and saying, oh, it was my idea. Like, nah, I don't think so. But anyway, um, so they, you know, they they they're on this rapid expansion program through this whole thing. So. And that was the point. They were they were they were an East Asian group, but they had global designs from the beginning. And really, they were the core driving thing behind what would become the World Anti-Communist League. All right. Now, um, obviously, Packle's biggest ally in the U.S. was uh, were the two biggest allies rather in the U.S. were the China lobby and the Moonies, but much more so the China lobby in the early days. Now, Keith, I know you've already gotten into some of the big U.S. backers like Marvin Liebman and what have you. But is there anything else you want to add about him or any of the other major American players? Hmm. Well, um, there's more than one way to answer that. I mean, you could put the KMT right at the top. I mean, Madam Chiang did a fair bit of agitating in the U.S. for the cause. Uh, Claire Booth Luce would be another. Uh, the Luce's trust, I think, came out of that. And her husband, she was a congresswoman, and her husband, Henry Luce, yeah, in Time Magazine and all that. Um, and then uh, there's Minnesota Congressman Walter Judd, who was from a missionary family in China himself. He later becomes a wackle guy through and through all the way to, to like, till he died. You know, I think he was on the, the U S chapters, uh, letterhead even into the eighties when it reorganized with Reagan and white house. I mean, I don't know how, what he was doing, but, but yeah, he was, he was a big proponent of China lobby causes, um, early on, but a big one would be, uh, a guy that literally took credit as the entirety of the China lobby with, as he put it, his tongue only partially in his cheek. And that would be Alfred Kohlberg, who was a wealthy um, New York businessman, uh, had a lot of ties to uh, free China, um, import and export. I'll leave that to your imagination. But uh, I think it was a lot of it was textiles, things like that. But, um, but yeah, he was an attack dog. You know, he started, he was one of Marvin Liebman's mentors. Okay. He started a group called the Free China Relief Agency. And I think the something like Emergency Relief for Chinese Intellectuals or something, and just kind of these American fundraising groups that were trying to help first lobby for greater support for Chang and then, and then helping raise funds to help evacuate and reestablish their government you know, in, in Taiwan and stuff. Um, but Kohlberg helped Liebman start this committee of 1 million, which uh, I mentioned at the beginning, you know, and he was on the, the, the board of that paper org, paper organization, letterhead organization. Um, but, you know, the real driving force of, of the China lobby in the United States was Chiang Kai-shek and his people in the United States, you know, the Taiwanese embassy. You know, they had a lot of pull. Um, so it's it, there's there's more than one way to answer answer that. But, you know, it was it was Chang for the most part. <laughs> but, you know, Alfred Kohlberg. Um, had. You know, newspapers like Plain Talk and I can't remember what the other one was, but he had a couple 
different newspapers that, you know, pushed the pro Chang line and got stories picked up in the, in, in bigger newspapers, you know, that originated in his, you know, so Alfred Kohlberg claimed for himself the title of the, the entirety of the China lobby. And the guy named Joseph Keeley wrote like a, a biography of him called him, you know, and it was called China lobby man. So I guess, I guess we may as well just say, you know, he was, he was, he was one of the big players. All right, so let's get back to the drug connection for a moment then, okay? So you've described this as uh, what pretty much like the 20th century opium war, right? Mm. Yeah, it's sad to say, but, you know, all those things, they come home. You start something over there somewhere and eventually it comes home. I mean, uh, you recently scored, and I do mean scored, an interview with the great parapolitical historian uh, Douglas Valentine. And uh, who who just went off, which is pretty glorious. He just went off for a while <laughs> on your show, but <laughs> you just kind of let him wind him up and let him go. But yeah, you know, you can read uh, his books, The Strength of the Wolf and The Strength of the Pack. I have them both, and they they get into a lot of that history. And I I would refer your readers to and your listeners to either that interview with him, where he kind of gives the basic outlines of it, and or better still, his books. You know which go into a lot more detail, but, um, so tell you what, I'll read it. I'll read you a quote. This is from Nixon's domestic policy chief, John Ehrlichman. I think he said this in 1968. Yeah. Or later on after 68, but anyway, uh, here it is quote, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon white house after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt both those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. End quote. I mean, that was from, you know, around 68, but you can project that statement backwards into the 50s and 60s, you know, and forwards into the 80s and beyond. Um, Alfred McCoy in his book, Politics of Heroin, talked about all the supply chains being disrupted around the world. And, you know, there might have been less than like 20,000 heroin addicts in the United States. And we really had it within our reach to just eradicate this as a social and moral problem after World War II, and it, it was just not to be, and it's just too too lucrative, um, you know. Uh, if you go back to that Carl Oglesby book I'd mentioned, the Yankee Cowboy War, he basically says the two great cardinal sins of before, or I mean, in, for, for during and after World War II for the United States, the first one is. Um, teaming up with organized crime, and and after the war, I think it was uh, teaming up with Reinhard Galen. So, you know, um, getting into bed with the mob meant getting into bed with all the organized crime that they do, you know, and employing it. <clears throat> and this is this is what parapolitics is. You know, it's the uh, the overworld and the underworld 
partner with each other to create the world. You know, Asgard and Hell make Midgard. <laughs> They're just like yin and yang. And um, and it's been that way ever since. And um, as far as it being like an opium war, it would be like if the Chinese in the 19th century said to the East India Company, actually, it's okay if you bring heroin into China. We have these <laughs> populations we're trying to target and disenfranchise, and you can sell it to them, and we'll get our cut. And, you know, yeah. So, I mean, the, the it, you know, it's just been the, the flow of drugs in the United States under the, what, what uh, Peter Dale Scott called intelligence immunity, you know, and the enforcement agencies being leaned on by, the intelligence agencies. I mean, it's, it's the, the, the effect on our society has just been incalculable. It's, it's probably just beyond reckoning of what that's done to the shape of our electorate. You know, like, like he, like Ehrlichman said, you know, criminalize them heavily. Well, you get thrown in jail, you know, you get your voting rights taken away. You know, what's the long-term impact of just criminalizing scores and scores of, Poor people, people of color, and just taking them off the voting rolls permanently, you know, that's just been like a long-term project that really got going in the 80s with the with the cocaine and the crack and whatever. But, uh, yeah, in a better world, we'd have like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission and some kind of restorative justice program to try to like actually, you know, deal with that as a society and, and admit to it and decriminalize a bunch of stuff and stop locking people up over it. But like George H.W. Bush said once, you know, the United States doesn't apologize. You know, so it's like, <laughs> all right, you know, I guess I guess forget that. But I'm not holding my breath. But it, in a better world, that would be in the offing. But yeah, a lot of that goes back to the China lobby stuff and the KMT and Southeast Asia and its blowback from our opium wars in the 19th century. You know, all these things come home eventually. But anyway, that's probably enough of an answer there. Yeah, it's just remarkable. Now, I mean, before wrapping up with this segment, I just wanted to ask you about the American cover-up of the KMT drug involvement. Um, I believe it was known as far back uh, as the 1950s due to a certain book, correct? Yes. Yes, that book um, was called the, the China Lobby in American Politics. It was, it was written by a guy named Ross Cohen. Took him seven years to write it came out in 1960 um, and it was an indictment of you know a bunch of charges against the China lobby and McCarthyism and the likes of Alfred Kohlberg and the Chinese embassy and all these kind of things and he had a, a number of things that he said about him and he, he was very dispassionate and very well you know um, it wasn't a polemic of any type and it's not some rag that he just churned out because he was in a bad mood. Like I said, it, it took him seven years to write the thing. Um, but the, the passage that got this book banned and, and there's a book out there called literature suppressed on political grounds that came out years ago that actually tells a story. And, you know, we think a banned book week that happens in September and it's like to kill a mockingbird and Fahrenheit 451 and, 1984, and, and this is like a history book that got kept off the shelf for basically 14 years, you know, during a, a time when it was probably most needed. 
like us going into Vietnam, for example. Um, but anyway, uh, he made this he made this claim in the book, and this is what really got it yanked. Um, and I'll quote it. Uh, quote, some Chinese have engaged in the illegal smuggling of narcotics into the United States with the full knowledge and connivance of the Chinese nationalist government. The evidence indicates that several prominent Americans have participated in and profited from these transactions. It indicates further that the narcotics business has been an important factor in the activities and permutations of the China lobby, end quote. So, these guys didn't like bad press to begin with, fine, but that one was like intolerable, and they went all in on suppressing the book. And I read that book right before I got to take my trip to Hoover Institution, and so I was like aware of that. It was fresh in my mind, and so I wound up pulling a box or two of Alfred Kohlberg's materials and uh, Marvin Lehman stuff, and you can see in the in the Hoover collections the. Uh, the back and forth between these guys and some others like William Loeb, who was uh, the Manchester, New Hampshire news leader, I think is a paper. And they're coordinating this campaign to like smear this book, smear the author, get the book suppressed, you know, get get me get me the Chinese embassy here, the free China embassy. Um, and it's amazing to watch, you know, to see these letters back and forth of these guys like, how are we going to take this guy down? I mean, this is like. The guys are making sausage, you know, um, and and one of the things they did was uh, the the publisher, Macmillan, who, by the way, same publisher as the first round of Tragedy and Hope. Which if you ever saw that YouTube uh, video with the, the old interview with Carol Quigley talking about how I don't understand how my book got banned, um, same publisher. Um, but uh, I don't know advanced- if it was. I don't know if it was still at the time, but the publisher had been uh, set up by the Macmillan family, of course, which eventually produced the prime minister, Harold Macmillan, who was brought down uh, by the Perfumo scandal, actually, in 63. Um, I don't know if the American affiliate was still connected at that point or not. But, yeah, it all goes back to that one particular family. (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't know that. That's 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 that wrinkles things a little bit. But um Anyway, they, they, there was like an advanced copy of it got given to the, the Taiwanese embassy. And they flipped their lid, of course. You know, this is an outrage. How could you say this? And they got Harry Anslinger, the uh, BNDD chief, Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, the predecessor to the DEA, um, to weigh in on it. And and push back. And uh, he, he gave and I'll, I'll quote one more time. I, I like just talking. I don't like reading quotes, but, you know, it's it's, it's important. Right. So here's a quote from him. He's, he's giving, quote, an unqualified statement that this is manufactured out of whole cloth, that there's no scintilla of evidence that any Chinese officials have engaged in illegal smuggling of narcotics into the United States with the full knowledge and connivance of the Chinese nationalist government. End quote. And what's interesting about that is there's other authors later on, maybe Peter Dell Scott. I don't remember exactly, but I know there's one book co- called uh, Cocaine Politics and the War on Terror. And I can't remember the author right now, but 
He took that little statement. Oh yeah, I believe that is Peter Dale Scott, if I remember correctly. Well, it would have. It sounds like a Peter Dale Scott book, but it was actually some other guy. I can't remember right now, but maybe maybe, oh. maybe you're right. Maybe it is, but uh, maybe I'm thinking of a different book. But anyway, one of these. One of these books kind of telling this story, and it's more than one, and I read it, and it's been a few years, but the point – it doesn't matter. But the point is they, people say, you see that little part in there about full knowledge and connivance. That Those are weasel words, and, and Harry Anslinger's uh, denial here has this little escape hatch with these weasel words saying – you know, basically like uh, if the Chinese embassy didn't – or the Chinese government didn't have full knowledge and connivance, then therefore – you know, like they're off the hook, you know, like they could, we didn't know about it or something like his words were meant to have this escape hatch. But really, if you hear the quote that I just said, he's quoting the author of the China lobby directly, full knowledge and connivance of the Chinese government um, and using his words explicitly in his denial. But, you know, at the time, a lot of these books were uh, being written and stuff, you know, the China lobby book was off the shelves. <laughs> So, you, didn't, you know, it like wound up decontextualizing uh, Harry Anslinger's denial of it, which is just interesting to see how these things wind up being repeated in, in different books. So it's me being nerdy again. But um, but the other thing about it is in those those papers of Hoover between Liebman and Kohlberg, they're plotting, which what is by now like the most common and frankly, these days, like overused Cywar trick. And it's so easy. And it's so effective. And it's basically the one where you accuse the your opponent, your enemy, of doing the thing that you're doing, you know. So uh APACL is putting out these pamphlets, you know, showing these maps, these aerial photos of where all the all the heroin labs in mainland China are, you know. It's the commies doing it, you know. Um and Harry Anslinger was doing the same thing, saying, actually it's the communists, you know. And so this guy writes this book, The China Lobby, and it's American Friends. And here's Kohlberg and Liebman planning on writing a book called The Red China Lobby. And it's American Friends, you know, just like mirror image projection kind of thing. And that book, I, I think it's the same one, but there was a book published in 1970 by the American Security Council Foundation called Red China Lobby and it's American Friends. And here's these guys planning, planning to write this, you know. I don't know. It's just funny. But so that that book, initial print run, 7000 was going to be. And they told Cohen, um, that's K-O-E-N, by the way, Ross Cohen, um, you know, you got to take this thing about the drugs out of there. And he like reluctantly agreed. And then they started pushing some more. We actually want you to make further changes of substance. And he's like, you know what? Screw you. And so. But the book was already like the contracts were already signed, you know, so, so they, they printed like 7,500 and they immediately pulped like 4,000 of them before they ever hit the shelves. So you got 3,500 books out there. And in the introduction to the new, um, the, the edition that I got came out in 74, it was reprinted, you know, 14 years after it originally came out. And a guy named Richard Kagan or Robert Kagan, I can't remember right now, but, uh, the guy that wrote the introduction, I think it was Richard Kagan. Um, you know, he just named names. He's like, it's the CIA, it's the uh, BNDD, and the State Department that worked to get this book suppressed. 
and he describes how like right wing groups would go buy up all the copies off the shelves at bookstores or steal them off of library shelves to the point where what remaining copies of it were out there in circulation got taken and hidden away in like special collections so they wouldn't get stolen, you know, um, just get them off the shelf however you can. Right. So, and by the time it gets republished in 74, you know, this is two years after the politics of heroin comes out. So, you know, Alfred McCoy, takes that one little offending passage about yeah the chinese nationalists are all up in this heroin business that one little statement and he unpacks it into like a 600 page freaking doorstop like no no really it's a thing here's a 600 page book you know <laughs> giving you the whole history of the whole thing and yeah peter dale scott wrote the intro you know shut up um so by the time it came out again in 74 um you know, nobody asked him to take out anything. It was it was all too late. I mean, the UN had, you know, Taiwan had been delisted, you know, and Red China was in the UN by that point, And it was the China lobby's power had kind of been broken, except for the, the grievance mongering and the perpetual conspiracy mongering that had given rise to. And even in APACL, by that point, the Taiwanese mantle of leadership was passing more into the Japan-Korea Mooney sphere, you know. So it's an interesting story. And the book is um, you know, you can get it on Amazon. I got a copy of it and it it fell apart immediately. It was like an old first printing, but it's worth a read. You know, and just last thing I'll say about it, because we should we should move on and get maybe get Moss in here at some point. But uh Alfred Kohlberg's plain talk newspaper. Uh, the author of the China Lobby book, he does a side-by-side comparison of all of these passages and these accusations of treason in the State Department that first appear in the Plain Talk newspaper, this China Lobby newspaper, and then he compares them side-by-side with Joseph McCarthy's accusations on the floor of the Senate and in the press or whatever. And it's just like he cribbed all of his lines. This is what I meant by like laying the whole McCarthyism thing at the feet of the China Lobby because – Joe McCarthy's all of his talking points in his Red Scare stuff came right out of Alfred Kohlberg's um, press organs, which ultimately were the, you know, the Chinese nationalists, the China lobby. So there you have it. Yeah, that's just remarkable. Um, And yes, I mean, it is interesting, too, that the drug trade, as you had indicated, really just started, or at least the connections to the KMT and the drug trade, the admittance of this really began uh, in the early 70s, which, you know, as you were indicating, is right around the time Nixon was trying to normalize relations with China. So, yeah, I mean, it was covered up right up until the point in time when it was no longer politically expedient to do so. Yeah, and our soldiers were coming home addicted to heroin, you know, Sam Stone and stuff, and, and, you know, stuffing them in body bags. I mean, it's like, eventually, these things come home, like I said, so. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, I mean, I also think, too, it was just the whole restriction of freedom of policy, the things that they could do. I mean, you know, essentially the same thing we're now with the Israeli lobby. I mean, it's like even, you know, I mean, the U.S. almost doesn't have an independent foreign policy in certain regions of the world because of some of these different lobby groups. But, you know, we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, But yes, yes, yes. It's time to shift gears now once and for all and get back to Eastern Europe for a little bit here. 
All right, so Moss, okay, let's start with something called Captive Nations. It had its origins with what is known as Captive Nation Weeks. Week. What can you tell us about this event and the figures behind it? Well, first, I would like to wish you both um, a very happy Captive Nations Week. Oh, um, <laughs> and Oh, it's this week, that's right. That's and a, bela- a belated happy Cap- Captive Nations Week to you know our listeners by the time... Um, this is up. But something that's also um, serendipitous about that that is that this year, something unique about Captive Nations Week, aside from taking place, you know, amidst a global pandemic um, and an uprising in the United States, um, this year's focus is kind of almost singularly focused on China. And um, Donald Trump and his, you know, quote unquote, his statement, um, you know, I, I don't believe for like a moment that he actually has ever authored um a captive nations week resolution but he quote unquote he refers to the captive nation of china and um for those who don't know um because captive nations week is a obscure tradition that's just kind of left over from the cold war um it's the people may be more familiar with the victims of communism memorial foundation which is closely tied to the Heritage Foundation and the um, the victims of communism, like capital V victims of capital C communism. It was co-founded by uh, Lev Dobriansky, who was the principal author uh, of the Captive Nations Week resolution, um, the joint congressional resolution that uh, made Captive Nations Week a thing every third week of July or sometimes it will fall on the fourth week of July because it officially starts the third Sunday of um, July. And he then was the founder and I think even chairman for life of the National Captive Nations Committee, which I'm going to get into. But he died in 2008. And basically since then, the um, Victims of Communism Foundation has been carrying on carrying on the work of the National Captive Nations Committee. And so the Victims of Communism is kind of, I think a lot of people might know it best as kind of the champion today of what's basically become like a meme, um, you know, about how communism has killed 100 million, 120 million, 140 million people. And, you know, it's, I think a lot of that is derived from this this book, The Black Book of Communism. I think it's called that, you know, it counts... Um, a whole bunch of like dead Nazis into that count. And otherwise it's just kind of a, I don't know, I'm not going to get a whole bunch into that, but it's a really right wing, basically neoconservative outfit. And so they, this year in, I got an email from them um, in which they refer to not just the captive nation of China, but the captive nations. And so they are very much pushing the whole, you know, new cold war with China Organization um, of it effectively is what you're suggesting. Yeah, and so I mean, I feel like that statement kind of gets it. You know, they what they wow. they think. Not only do they think that you know the United States can win a new Cold War with China, um, but they see that victory evidently as you know breaking up China into half a dozen or more states. But so, anyways, Captive Nations Week. It is a thing that. 
is a thing of history. It's not. It's a shell of its former self, and yet the particularly the victims of communism foundation is trying to make a comeback um, on behalf of Captive Nations Week. And last year was the first ever time they had what they called a Captive Nations Summit in D.C. And this would have been the second annual one, but I think they did it um, via Zoom yesterday, and it was almost entirely focused on you know China. So that's all very serendipitous. But as I mentioned, um, so this got started, 1959 was the first, uh, when this law was passed. And, you know, a lot of people who are um, proponents of Captive Nations Week and what really became what you could call the Captive Nations Movement or the Captive Nations Lobby, um, they would like to say uh, that, you know, this law, I forget exactly what, the law was um, what number it was called, but Public they would law say, 5982 or something. Like yeah, that. no, that sounds right. But it says it quote like authorizes and um, encourages, I think, the president to declare the third week of July Captive Nations Week. They would like to say that it requires the president. I think I've even seen the Victims of Communism Foundation use that language. Um, huh. But so. In 1960, is formed the National Captive Nations Committee with this guy Lev Dobriansky as the chairman, who was the principal author of the resolution. And he was also, um, not for life, but for decades, the longtime uh, president or chairman of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America. And for those who tuned in um, to the first episode, the episode we did about the ABN, Dobriansky was really like the chief ally in the United States of the um, Bandera wing of the OUN or the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. And, um, you know, it's really just a fact that he became firmly in the grip of the OUNB. I mean, I think you can read those words verbatim in the uh, Ukrainian Weekly, which is the principal English language Ukrainian newspaper in the United States. And I think who actually said that is this guy, Myron uh, Kiropis, who was affiliated more with the OUNM, which is the um, the older wing, the original wing of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. And when he wrote that, this was in, I think, the 2000s or in the 90s. Michael B. Ryan, who's another guy from, I think, the Heritage Foundation and a vice chairman of the Victims of Communism Foundation, who also at some point became the chairman of the National Captive Nations Committee. He writes a letter to the to the Ukrainian Weekly in response, being like, what does this guy Kiropis have, um, have against the OUNB? Um, and so the National Captive Nations Committee, kind of like the ABN, had like a Ukrainian Bandarite uh, vanguard to it. And... Uh, so the National Captive Nations Committee, or the NCNC, was basically authorized to oversee the Captive Nations Week festivities across the country. And so um, I did find this document that's undated, but it says when the committee was still in formation, so I'm guessing 1960, of a roster of the Cap- uh, Captive Nations Committee. They later would create an advisory committee which basically roughly would got about half of members of Congress, you know, so in the House and the Senate to sign on to their 
basically symbolic advisory committee. But, you know, I think the question is who was really advising who in that. But so in the Captive Nations Committee, um, or what was the initial formation of it, some names that have already been mentioned um, by Keith have come up on this. And that includes Robert Welch, the founder of the John Birch Society, um, Major General, or retired at this point, Charles A. Willoughby. Um, let's see, Charles Kirsten. I don't know if Keith, you got into him, but you know he was a he was a representative in the House for um, Wisconsin or Milwaukee, and before he was in Congress, he worked for um, McCarthy. Uh, Claire Luce was on the original National National Captive Nations Committee, um, and a whole host of others. Uh, Donald Miller, who I'm sure Keith is going to talk about in a future episode of this Wackle series, and um, you know, just to, to name a few other people, we've also got Austin App. Um, since this is in alphabetical order, he's the first one on the list. He's like a pioneering Holocaust denier. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a John Birch Society, too, if I remember correctly. Oh, was he? I okay. well, think he, so. We've also got Buckley, um, Phyllis Schlafly. Um, I mean, the list kind of goes on and on. You've got some figures from the ABN. Curiously, um, well, I'll come back to that later, the CIA connected. I don't – there may be here, but I don't identify anyone who is connected to the CIA except um, James Burnham who was the, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but he, you know, some people think he was like one of the first neoconservatives. Now, uh, Moss, you detect uh, the influence of the infamous Nazi Alfred Rosenberg behind all of this, correct? I wouldn't say behind all of this, but, you know, you know, Keith found this really great quote, Dean Rusk, and he gave this oral uh, history interview, and he referred to the Captive Nations Resolution as quote, one of the wildest kinds of Cold War kind of thing you ever seen in your life. And I think he was referring to something George Kennan, who's, you know, kind of like the architect of U.S. Uh, Cold War containment yeah, strategy. State. Yes, yes. And um, he took issue with the inclusion, the original Captive Nations Week uh, resolution named, you know, what it considered at that time the Captive Nations and it included two countries that some people have questioned if they really are real countries or not. Um, Idel Yural being one, and the other being uh, Kozakia. It's like a Kozak uh, state. It's a little little padding there, yeah. And that, I think the pretty simple explanation with that is the ABN had two national committees uh, for both of those names, which were both originated from... Um, national committees for Kazakia and Idel Ural um, in Rosenberg's ministry. And we kind of got into the ABN-Rosenberg connection um, in the ABN show. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, that's that's uh, the short answer. Okay. Now, what was the CIA's role in all of this? So Christopher Simpson wrote... Uh, great book by the title of a word that um you know has come up a few times i think now uh blowback and it's about how um you know essentially the, it's about the u.s uh government and cia and 
and such and such working with uh, these Nazis and Nazi collaborators and the so-called blowback that had on our um, not just our foreign policy but domestic and so a lot of people know about um, when they talk about you know the CIA working with Nazis and stuff they think of Operation Paperclip and um, when they think of those who aren't Germans I feel like you know the, the number one thing that comes up is Radio Liberty and um, Radio Free Europe um, and you know the ABN um, had as did uh, many in the China lobby I think that's kind of where you see them having perhaps first kind of coming together not necessarily ABN but the the groups essentially that the ABN represents and particularly I'm thinking of the Ukrainians and Dobryansky um, who was not I don't think a member of the OUNB, but, you know, a sympathizer and their chief ally in the United States. Um, they were very, for their own reasons, very skeptical and critical of RFERL and of the Voice of America. Um, the China lobby, you know, had this, they saw the Voice of America being part of the whole, you know, so-called loss of China and um, the Ukrainians and like-minded um, groups that were in the um, ABN saw it as being a nest of, you know, pro-Russian influence. Dobryansky, you know, at one point referred to the uh, the Russia first. Um, the, you know, the State Department was, you know, had a Russia first ideology, you know, and this is decades before, you know, people were talking about Trump that way. And if that sounds a little bit John Birchy, like, well, that, you know, that fits in because John Birch Society, besides being enthusiastic supporters of the China lobby and, and friends of them are uh, also the same of Captive Nations Week as, you know, as I mentioned, uh, Robert Welch was a founding member, apparently, of the National Captive Nations Committee. And, you know, in the John Birch Society had a thing of calling the United Nations a Trojan horse for communism. And, you know, there was, um, in New Hampshire, there was a Trojan horse that was originally a John Birch Society thing, and then it became, like, the mascot of Captive Nations Week in New Hampshire. And so there, you, you can see, you know, there and there's plenty of pictures of, you know, Captive Nations Week stuff where you see John Birch Society, like, signs, like, you know, get the U.S. out of the U.N. now. Mm. And so all these, you know, kind of groups come together. But so anyways, about the CIA, um, the CIA uh, had the – within the Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty was under kind of the umbrella of the National Cap uh, – National um, – what was it? National Free Europe Committee or just the Free Europe Committee. And also within that umbrella, um, you had the Assembly of Captive European Nations, which was basically like the CIA's kind of like respectable version of the ABN. I think is one way to think of it. Um, I think its headquarters are literally across the street from the UN, and it kind of was basically like a private, like UN for the uh, Eastern European anti-communist <clears throat> groups that the CIA was working with, which, you know, included there were Nazi uh, collaborators and certainly fascist sympathizers amongst them. They weren't. Um, you know, compared to the 
ABN, I feel like they were relatively mild. Um, and yet, as far still, as Nazi collaborators go, of course. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, it's like I mean, because the ABN, it's like almost as we were kind of getting into that other show is that they didn't kill anybody with farm tools, is what you're trying to say. Not to my knowledge. I mean, who knows? But um, you know, I I know less about the whole Nazi collaborators within that whole Radio Europe assembly of captive European nations uh, thing, and. But then there's another component, the Crusade for Freedom, which was, you know, since the National Cap, uh, National Free Europe Committee was ostensibly a private organization um, behind Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, which was giving it cover, in order to provide explanation where the fundraising was coming from, they create the Crusade for Freedom, which, you know, I think was really, in truth, bankrolled subsidized indirectly by the CIA via like the Rockefeller and Ford foundations and such. But, um, they actually had among others, Ronald Reagan as a spokesperson, you know, when he was still this like corporate actor. And so they would go around the country. Um, I think they had like a mock, uh, Liberty bell. So I think that was basically just to provide, um, cover and a, an explanation for, you know, where the money is coming from and that it's some give it the appearance of being this grassroots thing when it's really, you know, just funded by the CIA. And so Christopher Simpson writes how in the early 50s when this is going on, um, how the CIA's, you know, covert attempts to drum up this like domestic support for what is really, you know, Washington's like declaration of political warfare against the Soviet Union um He's just he's saying it's, quote, it became instrumental in introducing into the American political mainstream many of the right wing extremist emigre politicians plans to, quote unquote, liberate Eastern Europe and um, and how the crusade for freedom targeted the U.S. Uh, with five million dollars of propaganda in the first half of the 1950s, which doesn't sound like that much today. But as he writes, that's a lot um, of money. Yeah, established the Crusade for Freedom as, quote, the largest single political political advertiser on the American scene during the early 1950s, rivaled only by such commercial giants as General Motors and Procter and Gamble. And so, you know, I don't think Reagan um, necessarily had much of a clue of what this was really about, but um, the Assembly of Captive European Nations did support um, the creation and the celebration of Captive Nations Week. And, you know, so by the time Reagan comes into office, he's a big fan of Captive Nations Week. And um, he, you know, it's 1983 on the 25th, for the 25th uh, annual Captive Nations Week that the ABN's uh, leader for life, Yaroslav Stetsko, in the last three years of his life, um, gets to come to the White House and shake hands, shakes hands with Reagan and meets Vice President Bush and um, the UN Ambassador Kirkpatrick. And, um, yeah, so it's, because uh, I think Jimmy Carter, I believe, was the first U.S. president who almost dared to ignore the Captive Nations Week resolution. Because, as I said, you know, it's not a requirement that the president declare Captive Nations Week. But by that point, 
you know, there really was like this lobby that one of the chief things was just to make sure that every year we have Captive Nations Week. And so I believe it was after Carter almost became the first to ignore Captive Nations Week that they create an honor roll of all the politicians who, you know, not just the president, but governors and statewide leaders and local leaders, because it's encouraged down to mayors to declare Captive Nations Week within their jurisdiction. And so it was at one point, I mean, during the Cold War, it became a pretty huge thing and um, and really had a, you know, it's trying to, as I said, it's, there are these like neoconservative freaks who are trying to revive Captive Nations Week, and I don't think they really fully realize how crypto-fascist, you know, it really, it's how it really was. I mean, it really was this, the John Birch Society talks about a Trojan horse. I mean, Captive Nations Week was a Trojan horse for, you know, all these crypto-fascists and Nazi collaborators and their sympathizers and supporters. Yeah. Just horrendous. I, I think they know. Think yeah, they know. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because I mean, like the 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 second iteration of the committee for present danger was a lot of people that wound up being the the writers for the Reagan's foreign policy, mm. and there was a lot of cross pollinization with you know Yaroslav Stetsko. And I mean, you know, and 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 Kuching Kang of the of uh, APACL. And um, it's one of those things about Liebman again, you know, he's like, oh, these 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 Nazi thugs or whatever. It's like, dude, I've seen the documents <laughs> in yeah. the room. You're in the room with these guys. Figuring out the foreign policy. Um, what is it? The CIS, the Com- Committee for Inter-American Security or whatever, you know. Anyway, whatever. I'm just saying, like, if if these the the current iteration of the CPD decided to do some digging into, well, what did it look like last time? They would have, they know who these guys are. That's mm-hmm. just my speculation, but yeah, yeah. And I mean, I I think you even have guys like Frank Gaffney. I mean, where you've got like a direct lineage in some sense. I mean, between the kind of incarnations from the 70s and 80s into the current day as well. So. Yeah, I I mean, maybe not everybody in this, uh, the Committee for Present Danger is aware of it, but I'm sure there are at least a couple of people that know about all the crypto-fascist yeah. stuff that went on in the background for years. Um, on the topic, though, of crypto-fascism, let's, uh, let's get into briefly the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations' relationship with the captive nations movement. Okay, Moss? Yeah, the way, you know, the, the ABN are so, they were so basically unapologetically fascist that, you know, they always stuck with the name anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations, the connotations of, of which are kind of, are pretty fashy in and of itself. Um, you know, that instead of calling uh, communists that, you know, they're Bolsheviks, which kind of, especially for these oh. Nazi collaborators, you know, is uh, reminiscent of the whole Judeo-Bolshevism, like, um, I like just ideology and propaganda, which is, you know, such a underpinning of just such a crucial thing for, you know, in terms of how they can try to justify, try to justify, um, you know, their participation in the Holocaust. Um, But, you know, if they were more, if the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations were, you know, existed today and it were, 
or even if just hypothetically, if they were more PR savvy, it's pretty easy to imagine how they might have called themselves the International Captive Nations Committee, because that's essentially what they were parading themselves as. And so, but regardless, the point is just that I really feel like the ABN um, was basically like the de facto international counterpart of the National Captive Nations Committee. Um, or that that it, that the the latter was an arm of the former. Yeah, no, and truly, because you know, when I say like the a Trojan horse, it's really like a Trojan horse for the ABN. I really think that the whole captive nations movement was just, you know, it was a tool of the ABN essentially. And maybe that's a bit of a simplification or whatever, but I mean, I think that's more true than not. Um, you know, you see there, you know, you had the American friends of the ABN, and they were largely always in the forefront of the um, of the Captain Nations Week marches. And again, the common thing you see in the Cold War is the ABN, the American Friends of the ABN, and um, the Cap National Captive Nations Week Committee, Ukrainians, and particularly members of the OUNB, are the vanguard of that. Um, even in... Um, like branches of the National Captive Nations Committee. Not all of them, but significant number of them were led by, you know, Banderites, as they're called. Right. Okay, so let's start pulling all of these different threads together now, okay? So when did the ABN start making contact with APACL? I mean, there are indications that this went through the China lobby, correct, Moss? I don't, I mean, I would not be surprised if, if it was, you know, someone or entities from the China lobby that served to introduce them. But the ABN, yeah, did make contact with um, and just partner with the Asian People's Anti-Communist League very quickly after it was formed. Because um, it was, what, in 1954? And then Stetsko makes the first of several trips to Taiwan um, in 1955. And, you know, he's received as as if he was, you know, the leader of Ukraine. And, um, you know, this is something I wish Don was here for because um, he could talk more about the, the actual connections with the ABN and APACL and the China lobby more in depth. Um, or I don't know, maybe Keith, feel free to jump in. Um, but, I mean, I think more it's like the ABN... And APACL made this partnership, and they both have mutual friends in the China lobby. And, you know, I think the representatives of the China lobby um, more play a role in weaving these groups together into, you know, what becomes the World Anti-Communist League, especially, you know, with this, the first attempt to do so with this 1958 um, meeting in Mexico City. Yeah, I think... Uh... Don Diligent do, does know a lot about that. We talked to him one time and he just, you know, <clears throat> just like you, the guy's like an encyclopedia. You just let him, let him run with it. But um, I think the takeaway is that they, you know, the APAC will put out a pamphlet in 1960. Um, I think it's called APAC today or something like that. And they, you know, they kind of are, listing off their accomplishments in the six years since they had gotten started. And, and it's 
front and center that, you know, they're one of their earliest allies internationally or beyond their East Asian sphere that they originated in was, was the ABN. And I think they said something about their co- collaborating on psychological warfare projects. It's like, and, and, you know, psychological warfare is a big term that can mean so many different things, but, you know, in that, the MRA podcast that we did was talking about the word ideology used in a positive sense. Like we need a good ideology and like nobody talks like that anymore. It's like mm-hmm. a pejorative. And it's, it's like the same thing. No, nobody talks about psychological warfare as like a, in a positive way, but that's, that's something that people were bragging about in the sixties and people in the United States and around the world, we're saying, "Hey, the, we're 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 losing the psychopolitical warfare gap with the with the Reds. We need our own psychological warfare schools yeah. for civilians in the United States." And, and that, that was becomes, what the American Security Council was really fixated upon in that decade in the 1960s. Right, the, uh, the, Orlando, the Freedom Centers, and yeah, right. I mean, and Walter Judd is on the floor of the House saying, "We need this. We need we need psychological warfare. We need you know." It's just, it's amazing to me that they don't brag like that in those terms the way they used to, you know. Absolutely. Things have gotten slick, but <laughs> but the point is they were partnering up with ABN like right out of the gate. That's, that's, that's the takeaway. And the ABN had, through that Captive Nations thing, which was building by that point, you know, I think that law passed in 58 or 59, you know, but you had all these... Um, little groups of immigre, you know, lobbies and pressure groups in the United States that were just kind of being brought into this ABN fold uh, in the United States. So then that would become a way for APACL to have outreach and liaison in the United States, both through its own China lobby thing and then also through its captive nations thing. All right. Well, how about the the China lobby support then for Captive Nations Week? Uh, like Stetsko, you know, he makes his first trip to the U.S. and I talked to him about this before, but Stetsko makes his first trip in 1958 uh, to the United States, and um, he's this he's rejected for a visa on the basis that he's like this fascist war criminal Nazi collaborator. And 1958, there's a shift. And, I mean, I do think that shift is in large part because of the of the ABN's friends in the China lobby. I mean, for one thing, I think it's in February 1958, around the time that this, he ends up getting the green light, is he, he's telling someone who's clearly must be a CIA informant because they then tell the CIA about it and there's a report about it, is that Stetsko's, like you know, thrilled because he's saying that um, McCarthy and MacArthur are going to start this constitution party, constitutional party or something like that, like a new third party in the United States, and that they've already got all these sitting congressmen who are going to make the jump, and of course that never happened. But, you know, then Stetsko goes to the U.S., and he testifies to the House on American Activities Committee, which I suspect is probably a part of how we ended up getting a visa is because he was invited to testify to this committee. And it's also in the CIA documents that Dobriansky 
um, had lobbied um, his their congressional friends to help him get that visa. So, you know, I that all kind of points to China lobby friends of uh, making that happen. And that's so that's in 58. And then the following year is Captive Nations Week resolution. And um, and, you know, I've already mentioned some of the China lobby people who are part of the um, original Captive Nations Week uh, committee. But I think Walter Judd and Charles Kirsten in particular are some of the biggest friends and supporters of Captive Nations Week and the ABN. Um, I think Kirsten, you know, sponsored resolutions that were, you know, he wanted to see um, the U.S. government, I think even NATO, you know, basically provide direct support to the ABN. And I'm not sure if it was him or someone else, but I could have swore it was one of these China lobby Congress people who sponsors a resolution suggesting that the U.S. should, um, that like the representatives of the ABN member states should be, should take the place of their Soviet counterparts in the United Nations. And, or that in any case, they should get recognition as the rights, rightful like government in exile of Ukraine, of Bulgaria, of, you know, of all these member states, if you can call it that, in the ABN. Just didn't or, happen. Yeah, thank God. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think the they main They were pushed thing... for the same thing in Wackle later on. Like, I know we're a government in exile, or we're, we're, we think we are, but therefore we should have full voting rights and... In, in the World Anti-Communist League and the matter of some contention when they were organizing it in the 60s. But anyway. And do you know when they... Because um, didn't Wackel end up um, acknowledging or start celebrating, I guess, if you will, the uh, Captive Nations Week? Oh, yeah. That's... I mean, yeah. Yeah. Big, you know, for, the, for, for APACL, number one captive nation... China, you know, biggest, mm -hmm. most populous country in the world, absolutely. Didn't they have a thing uh, like World Freedom Day in Taiwan? Yeah. They had, they had like their own, it was yeah. like, I feel like it was like their own kind of Captive Nations Week, but it was like a day, and I think it was called Freedom Day, World Freedom Day, and that Dobriansky, as the chairman of the National Captive Nations Committee, among other things, was the one who would arranged to get like Strom Thurmond or whoever to go to Taiwan every year to speak um, at this event. Uh, they yeah. must have been really honored to have a guy like that come to the nation to speak for them. <laughs> yeah. Of course, well, like if they were in the United States, he wouldn't even let them sit in the same restaurant with him. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my Lord. All right. Bring, bring, bring the Trojan horse, bring the Liberty Bell mock up to the, you know. Get the, the uh, get the moral rearmament sing out choir to come. <laughs> uh, as long as just so long as Buckman was there with his uh, his fly unzipped, um, that that, uh, that painted a lovely image in my mind. By the way, Keith, I'm still struggling with that one even weeks after the MRA show. Um, <laughs> all right, but to wrap things up, I wanted to address another topic that I know both of you are passionate about, and that is the use of ethnic bodies by the far right here in the United States, uh, essentially is a lobbying mechanism. So to start off with, Moth, uh, can you go over the Republican National Committee's so-called ethnic strategy to uh, for us and how that plays into all of this? 
Yeah, so the whole, I mean, it it has origins going back before um, Nixon, but it's with after Nixon's, um, you know, 1968 uh, presidential election that Nixon wins, that the Republican Party um, makes this like a permanent facet of the RNC. Before that, the DNC and the RNC both have what they'll either call like ethnic division or outreach or nationalities committee or something along those lines to reach, you know, the so-called ethnic communities by which, um, you know, they pretty much mean European ethnic communities. Um, you know, there's no, when the Republican, uh, when the RNC finally made the, the um, Republican heritage groups or nationalities uh, council, you know, there wasn't a black or a Jewish uh, Republican federation. Um, no way. But but there was a, uh, you know, for every, like, anti-communist um, ethnic group in the United States, otherwise, you know, even, like, Italians, they have a, um, a committee. And so, as I said, that was... They they made that a permanent thing after the 1968 election, but in 19 for the 1956 and 1960 and so starting in 1959, the ethnic or the nationalities division of the RNC was chaired by Lev Dobriansky, and his ally in Congress, a Ukrainian American, was the chair otherwise in the 60s before this thing was made permanent. And um, the Ukrainians are a good example, but the pretty much all these, you know, groups that are in the ABN that have a corresponding um, nationalities or ethnic division in the RNC, those personalities, um, if not straight up fascists and anti-Semites, then, you know, friends of theirs are wound up becoming the... Um, the like leaders of these outreach groups. There was even um, a Kozak Republican Federation led by a dude who was a straight up, you know, self-admitted Nazi collaborator and like horrifyingly anti-Semitic, um, just, you know, not hiding it at all. And, um, and when I went to the Captive Nations Week, really pitiful demonstration in New York City last summer, um, I did meet a guy who's been saying, oh, you know, I've been coming to this thing since 1964 or whatever, my parents before that. And he name dropped two people in our – we had a conversation in which he's going on about basically about how, you know, the Jewish cabal and the, Chine the Chinese communists who are – control the New York Times and all that. But he name dropped two people that he knew back in the day, Robert Welch of the John Birch Society – and this guy, um, Nazarenko, who was the Kozak um, Nazi collaborator I mentioned, who chaired the Kozak Republican Heritage Group. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's where you just see this convergence of the captive. It's like the captive nations lobby movement kind of um, co-opting or whatever you want to say, um, dovetailing with the so-called ethnic strategy which is really like instituted thanks to nixon or at least under nixon um parallel to his famous infamous southern strategy um and then in turn that is 
you know, another foothold in the United States for the ABN. So that really, you know, climaxes with um, the Reagan administration in terms of these groups having, you know, influence and um, access to Washington and the White House. Yeah, and that Ballant book, the Russ Ballant book, Old Right, New Right, and Republican Party, he he gets into this subject a lot. Mm-hmm. No, I've got it right in front of me. That's kind of what I'm referring to. <laughs> right. It's really essential. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I mean, throughout this entire show, we have been indicating about the just incredible influence that some of these these ethnic lobby groups have managed to achieve with U.S. foreign policy. Of course, nowadays, when this discussion comes up, all of the focus tends to be on Israel and, you know, justifiably so. There has been a lot of disastrous U.S. foreign policy that has been engaged in for the last couple of decades to sustain Israel as an apartheid state in the Middle East. Um, And also kind of a fun note on all of this, despite the just absolutely fanatical amount of anti-Semiticism that many of these groups displayed over the years, the Israelis also developed quite a close relationship with the whole wackle uh, network as well. Of course, both groups do not like to talk about this, but uh, the relations specifically between Israel and Taiwan had become very close by the 1980s, along with good old apartheid South Africa. No doubt the leaderships of these different countries had a lot of notes to compare on and how they suppress their indigenous populations. So um, on that note, Keith, you know, I know you've got a lot to say about this subject. I mean, Eastern European lobbies, along with China ones, they have contributed greatly to the foreign policy of this country during the Cold War and beyond. So what are your thoughts? Well, um, foreign, but also domestic, you know, and and Moss was getting at some of this. And I I, I just I think it's really important because, like, if you don't read Ukrainian or if you don't read Korean or or, um, Mandarin or whatever, you know, during the Cold War, you might not have been able to suss out the degree to which like political disciplining happened through like these propaganda, these, these newspapers, for example, that would circulate amongst the emigre communities in the United States or refugees from, from World War II, you know, anyway, they're <clears throat> trying, you know, the, the, the Republican side of the coin in this, in the United States was trying to pull these, groups into a solid conservative voting block you know um and it seems to have worked and and, but then if you look at like sarah diamond's book uh, roads to dominion you know she talked about the emigre lobbies and the captive nations lobby and how some of these you know groups of of eastern european emigres you know they settled in the the rust belt and the industrial north and they would you know lean on the local school boards and 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 libraries saying, you know, I don't like this book, you know, about it. it's a little too on the nose for us. Why don't you get rid of it? And, you know, just kind of shaping domestic politics in the United States. Um, but, yeah, the Reagan and Bush did the same thing with with the ethnic, you know, lobbies, ethnic groups or whatever you call the committees in, in the RNC. Um, you know, when Carter started the Office of Special Investigations during his term it was out of the Justice Department. And that guy, John Loftus, who wrote The Secret War Against the Jews and The Belarus Secret, I think he was a, a prosecutor for the OSI. And when that happened, the captive nations lobby went nuts. 
you know, and they teamed up with white nationalist politicos like Pat Buchanan and others to just go after it on all fronts and, and suppress the efforts of that. And the OSI wound up getting information from the Soviet Union to um, for, for evidence for its prosecutions of some of these war criminals hiding in the United States or in some cases not hiding. Um, and, you know, so it's like, well, there it is. It's a communist plot. And who did the Nazis not like the Jews? Well, I repeat myself, right? You know, Judeo-Bolshevik, whatever. Um, so, you know, it's just like an example of influencing internal um, U.S. politics, you know, through these these groups. Um, but, you know, and the, 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 the China lobby in, in, in the sense of the, the KMT, the Kuomintang, I mean, they influenced – a lot of the politics and and doings of the overseas Chinese all over the place and in the U.S. And I'm talking about, you know, rank and file, regular people all the way up. Um, and the Koreans did that, too. Um, and, and, you know, the Moonies did that, you know. And so if you're an immigrant from some country you know, a victim of communism and you go into the land of the free and you're actually being pretty well watched and governed even in the land of the free by these, these ethnic lobbies and their, their kind of their human intelligence networks that go in all the way down to the neighborhood levels, you know, um, it's, you know, in some cases they're not above knocking you off if, if you don't toe the line. And I can't remember the example. I think it was some Koreans that got, killed in the 70s i'm i knew i should back off for from because i can't well there was actually there's also that oh, the case of the room i think it was the romanian um scholar uh there was a belief he might have been killed by some of the iron guard members actually right at the end of the cold war 18 like around 89 or 90 or something like that but he was the guy that was close to mercia iliad or whatever his name was the famous yes. mythologist Damn, I can't remember his name, but he wrote a book called Magic and Eros. Mm -hmm. in, in the Middle Ages, I believe. Yeah, the, in the Renaissance. It was a book about it was a book about uh, Giordano Bruno, and it basically painted him. I mean, this is like the uh, like one of these hero saints of occultists, and he's like, no, he was an actually evil <laughs> person and one of the first what we could call European tantrics. But um, that book was really important. Uh, it's oh, been yeah. pushing 10 years since I read it, but it really got into propaganda and how, you know, like the mm -hmm. under of it. And, and really, I mean, it's basis in, I mean, what we would think of essentially is ritual magic from the Renaissance and whatnot. It is, uh, it's a very fascinating work and, um, yeah. you know, both <clears throat> to understand the nature of propaganda and to understand the nature of actual magic for that matter as well. The guy, Colianu. Elon Colliano, I can't remember his name, but uh, yeah, he wrote that book, but he had the wrong opinions and he wound up getting, you know, gunned down for it. Um, I think Peter Lavenda talked about that in Sinister Forces as well. But um, yeah, it was a fascinating book. But but anyway, uh, yeah, you could get you could get off for that, for for, for not towing the line. Um, but a, a, a big one. Koreagate scandal of the 70s, and I alluded to this in our 4GW podcast, but, you know, that's a huge one, a huge example of, of an, uh, I guess you could call it ethnic lobby, but, I mean, it was really about 
keeping the, the, the money, the weapons, the economic support, and the prestige of the United States military power in the service of South Korea. <clears throat> and, you know, they said at the time that if the U.S. wasn't so, like, punch drunk from Watergate, that Korea Gate would have, like, really stuck out in our memories more to this day. But, you know, it's Tongson Park on the one hand and Reverend Moon on the other just buying up Congress critters and putting together deals. And, you know, um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a big one. And, and, you know, you hit the nail on the head that there with it, uh, recluse, you know, it's like, uh, it's always Israel lobby, Israel lobby, APAC. And you know, it's all you ever hear about as far as like foreign governments having an undue influence in the United States. Um, but you know, what about the Korean lobby? What about the the Contra Nicaragua lobby. You know, Marvin Liebman, who I love to pick on, um, you know, he got dinged in the 70s uh, by the Justice Department for being an unregistered foreign agent running this like PR machine in the United States to clean up Pinochet's image and pumping disinfo into the media stream about the assassination of Orlando Letelier um, in DC. And you, you can read about that. And it's kind of like what the China lobby book this back and forth where they're corresponding looking at how are we going to put this smear campaign together and disinfo campaign together it's the same thing that he did with his american chilean council you know it's not an ethnic lobby per se but it's, it's still kind of getting at the same phenomena that you're referring to um and he did the same thing with tibetans you know he like took credit for getting the dalai lama out of tibet started this emergency committee to help help the Tibetan refugees and all, you know, but they're always in service of these other, you know, this captive nation kind of thing. Anyway, you know, the OG original, the one that should not be overlooked as far as like foreign ethnic groups influencing United States domestic and foreign policy. I mean, I see Prince Andrew, Princess Di, mm. whatever. Every time I go to the damn supermarket, I have to care or see something about the damn British royals. I don't care. I don't care. Um, yeah, who got us into the war with the kill Germany first strategy? You know, Recluse, you know all about that. The dirty oh, tricks yes. and stuff that they played to yeah, yeah, yeah. Get That's their yeah. big dumb brother into the war on fighting on their side. Oh my big brother. And I just yeah, and the folks, I mean, this is gonna be something I'm gonna get into in my Epstein book. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, you hear a lot about this stuff about, you know, uh, just our political system being compromised by the Russians and so forth. I mean, folks. William Stevenson, that's a big name that every American should know, and they do not, Sir William mm. Stevenson, intrepid. I mean, that man was utterly ruthless. <laughs> the British sent him here for the sole purpose to get us into the war, and he did it by hook or by crook if it meant, you know, hiring right. women to sleep with our politicians so he had sexual blackmail material on it. That's what he did. If it meant creating false groups uh, to harass, you know, uh, isolationist groups and so forth, he did that. And if it meant employing the mafia to kill people on our soil that he did not like who were affecting his agenda, he did that too. Pretty much all yeah. the tactics that you hear the left and the right accusing each other of nowadays in this country, they were brought here by Sir William. He is huge, folks, and you're going to be hearing a lot more about him in the coming months, hopefully. So oh, he, good. Yeah. So, yeah, so it, you got to mention the British, right? <laughs> you got to, you can't leave them out. And that's not, you know, 
necessarily a left or right thing. And I know that's that was the way you framed the question. But, you know, like George W. Bush said, it's a global world. <laughs> <laughs> and freedom is a hell of a thing. And democracies are fragile and they're porous. And that's that's freedom for you. So if you are this deep state apparatus or whatever, and you want to influence the United States internally or in foreign policy capacity, there's a lot of tools in the box. And one of them could be these, these you know, foreign born ethnic lobbies, and they can kind of operate, you know, to some extent invisibly, you know? Um, yeah. And, but back to the China lobby, you know, the like, question is, you know, if it wasn't for them and the kind of the climate that they put in and the, the memes that they planted about falling dominoes and stuff, you know, how would it, how would our involvement in the Vietnam War have been different? You know, um, I mean, Chiang Kai-shek in that China lobby book, it talks about <clears throat> him being like, good, I hope there's a war in Korea because that'll get the U.S. involved. And then once they're over here, we can, you know, roll back the Chinese communist regime. You know, I'm just saying there's like all kinds of groups of people all around the world that want something from the United States. They want to have our power lent into their sphere for their, you know, purposes or whatever. There's just a lot of ways, a lot of levers in the United States that they can use. And then you have, you know, like the Korean situation in the 70s and stuff. I mean, it, it's just like you, you and and the, the, the Taiwanese, <clears throat> you know, using. The political warfare schools that they set up with Ray Klein in, in the, the late 50s to train death squads in Latin America because the American political system won't let you because, you know, the, the democratic controls here are working. Yeah, and those and so political you go around. Political, they're just going to add the political warfare school that they set up there in Taiwan that uh, Keith's alluding to with Ray Klein. I mean, that's essentially what the American Security Council was trying to do here with the uh, the Freedom School Centers or whatever the heck they were trying to call them at the time. Um, right. So yes, yes, we were quite blessed that they didn't quite manage to get those suckers here uh, based upon uh, their uh, what the uh, Taiwan one achieved during the 1980s at the height of Iran Contra. Yeah, but you've got your kind of less intense versions like the School of the Americas and, you know. But anyway, yeah, I mean, we can wrap it up here on all that. But yeah, there's there's a lot of different players and a lot of different, yes, ethnicities and national interests. And they all kind of blend together in this big gumbo. And the idea of like foreign influence and infiltration into our country is it really just shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. You know, I mean, you know, you'd like to anything think that anyone and that includes the Russians and includes the British and includes all the ones you would think. And it, it includes some ones that you would never think like Bulgaria or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. And I mean, you know, I know that's probably a shock to a lot of people, but uh, the reality is this is how the game is played, folks. And it has been it's a global world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
Well, I think on that note, then we shall wrap up. Um, you know, thanks all of you out there who were listening. Uh, we were very pleased with how the first installment of the Lackle series went. Uh, I think this one will do just as well. And that's a big thing because these are historic broadcasts. This is the first time that somebody has really attempted to do something like this in many years, probably not since David Embry did this in what the 80s or 90s or something to yeah. that effect. And we have the benefit of a lot of information that has come out in the press two or three decades as well to give a more complete picture, hopefully. So thanks again for your support for this. I mean, this you know series means a lot to those of us doing it. And uh, we're very happy that so far it seems like you guys at home are pleased with them as well. So on that note, thank you all, and good night and good luck. And stay tuned till next time around. We will be back with this series and the Moonies at some point in the coming weeks, and that will be a good one as well. So stay tuned. <laughs>